1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me pray. Father, we ask for your help as we look into your word this morning. We ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would give us understanding, that we would see the truth of your word, that we would see how it applies to our lives, that we would see what Peter is communicating to the churches of the dispersion, to Christians who are sojourners in this world, who are living as exiles in this world, awaiting awaiting the city whose builder and architect is God. Father, we pray that we'd understand the letter he's written to them and how he tells them to live as sojourners in this world, how we live in such a manner that we magnify the excellencies of Christ. Pray that not only would we understand that, but that our hearts would rejoice in that privilege and that you would be magnified as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are so many Christians who sort of live this drab, mediocre, now hear me, normal sort of American life. So many profession Christian, Christians that do so that you can't tell the difference between them and the unbelieving world. They live in such a way that their lives in no way, shape, or form look different from the unbelieving world. Now, I don't want to make a mistake here in your understanding. What I mean by being peculiar is not that you become like the Amish who hole up and have no electricity and, you know, who ride around in horse-drawn carriages and who wear peculiar clothes. That is not what I mean by being different from the world. What I mean by being different from the world is holiness, it's the pursuit of magnifying the excellencies of Christ. It's a life given over completely to him. If you live that sort of life, you will be peculiar enough. You don't have to wear long overalls and homeschool to be known as a Christian at that point. You will already look peculiar to the world. Just by your pursuit of Jesus. We live in our culture, it seems, as professing Christians, as if salvation is some bonus option we've chosen for our lives. You know, I think, God, I'll take that wife, and I'll take that car, and that job, and that house, and you know, I want some vanilla ice cream, and oh yeah, Jesus, throw him in too. That sounds good. I'd like to have him as well. 
we lose sight of the fact that we've been given this grand privilege to be Christians, to have a new life, a new identity, a new birth, a new glorious mission, a holy ambition. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is your identity now as Christians. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, what Peter is laying down here is we have been saved so that we can show off, so that we can show off God. We have been born anew. We have become this holy nation, this people for God's possession, so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into this marvelous light. That's why this has happened. As sojourners in this world, as exiles in this world, as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. I think a lot of times what people hear is that part we're not to be of the world, and they forget about the part that we're to be in the world. And so they misunderstand the idea that, you know what, we are to be out there among unbelievers. We're to live among them. We're to work among them. We're to befriend them, to care for them, to demonstrate the love of Christ to them. But we are not to be like them in our affections and in our passions. Our affections and our passions are to be given fully to Jesus Christ, to the pursuit of holiness as he is holy. But that sounds great. What does that look like? What does that look like in our daily life? How do we live in the world in such a way that we show God off to the world? That really is the question, and Peter answers that in multiple regards. But what I want to look at today is how Peter teaches us in chapter 2, really 18 through 25, and really to some extent 13 through 25, teaches us how we can demonstrate the excellence of God in our daily lives. There's three ways he does that here. They all have to deal with relationships we have with authority, okay? Three manners or three actions that show off God that make him look glorious in our relationships with people who are in authority over us. It's essentially what he's getting at here. He's practically working it out. There are other ways he practically works it out. He says, don't go off and run off into sin and orgies and drunkenness like the Gentiles do. He'll do that in chapter 4. But right here in chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he wants to lay down, I want you to understand how this works out daily. What does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? What does it mean to be a people of God's possession, holy, demonstrating the excellencies of Christ? What does that look like in your relationships in which people are in authority over you? He wants us to understand that. And there are three actions, really, that show off God. The first way we demonstrate the excellencies of God in our daily lives is that we obey the command. 
first way is that we obey the command to submit to fallen human authorities. Hear that? Obey the command to submit, to obey, to be subject to fallen human authorities. There are really three relationships that Peter talks about here authority-wise. The first one's in verse 13, and Jason dealt with verse 13 through 17 last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The first one's there. Look what it says. Be subject or submit or obey for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, be subject, obey, submit to your government because God has appointed them. The second one is in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and just, but also to the unjust. And the third one is in chapter 3, verse 1. The third one I will deal with next week. The third one says this, Likewise, wives, be submissive, be subject to, same word, obey your husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Do you hear the parallels in all three situations? In all three situations, you're in a relationship in which somebody's an authority over you. And in all three situations, that authority has been placed in your life by God. In all three situations, you are to obey that authority. And in all three situations, it is possible that that authority in your life will be unjust, will be unkind. The one I want to deal with today is really the one that has to do with masters and servants. Jason dealt with governing authorities last week, talking about how they were established by God and how we live in the midst of that. Today I want to talk about servants and masters. Next week I want to deal with wives and husbands. I want to deal with the issue of marriage. Because Matthew 19 is clear when Jesus says in Matthew 19, when he's talking about marriage, he makes a statement about your marriage. What God has brought together. Let no man separate. You hear that? What is that saying about your marriage? I hear spouses all the time making the comment, I just don't feel like this person is God's best for me. Right? I chose wrongly. I could have gotten a better spouse. Why don't I find somebody else? This person makes me miserable. Listen, you don't have a right to separate what God has brought together. He brought you together. It's not a mistake. He brought you together. And we're going to deal more with that next week. Jason dealt with um, the governing authorities already, so let's look verse verse 18 here and deal with this one. This relationship mentioned. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Well, what is the master servant relationship. I think we hear this, and the Greek word there can also be translated slaves, be subject to your masters, although we don't translate it here because the meaning is a bit different than what we think of when we think of slavery. In fact, when we read servants or slaves, we will tend to read it in a way where we read in the American slavery context. In other words, we think about the slavery that was happening in America in the early 19th century. That is not the kind of slavery that was happening in the first century. When we think of that, we think of people who are subjected against their will to being tortured, mistreated, unpaid slaves, treated atrociously, horribly, crime against humanity. 
one of the greatest sins in the history of our nation. That is not what slavery looked like in the first century. In the first century, you were often in a servant-master relationship or a slave-master relationship by virtue of political conquest of your area. If, if, somebody, if, a, if Rome came in and had conquest over your area, you may become in a slave relationship as a result of that, or you may come into a slave relationship because of debt you owe to people. But in either case, a slave relationship does not look like it looked in America. In the first century, what it looked like, you might have been a professional. You might have been like in medicine or law. You may have been someone who also does blue-collar work or white-collar work. That really wasn't the issue for slaves. You were also paid. You had your own household. You received, you lived in the household of your master in some way. You may have lived in a separate home, but in his land. But you were paid. You were taken care of. It wasn't like now. It's actually probably more equivalent to the employee-employer relationship we have in the U.S. It's closer in equivalence to the employer-employee relationship we have today than it, was, than it is to the idea of slavery that happened in this country. And so what's the command? It's to obey. Servants, obey your masters. Or employees, submit to your employers. Now, you may be in your relationship with your employer in a voluntary manner, i.e., it's an employer for whom you could come out from underneath their authority. But as long as you are voluntarily putting yourself under their authority, you do not have a right to buck their leadership and cause problems for them. Hear that? As long as you are voluntarily placing yourself under their authority, you do not have a right to buck their leadership and cause problems for them. You do your work with a good attitude and a solid work ethic. That's what you're supposed to do. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, or you can listen to me as I read it, in, chapter, in verse 22. Slaves, servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. First of all, you are to submit in a way that you have a good attitude, that you're sincere in your service to your employer. You're not people pleasing to get your way to manipulate them in some way. You're actually serving them as unto the Lord. Not only are you to do that, but you're also to work hard. Look what he then says in verse 23 of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. See what happens when I submit to the authority God has placed over me in employer-employee relationship is I actually magnify the excellencies of Christ. I magnify the excellencies of Christ by submitting myself to an employer and having a good attitude and working hard because I recognize that ultimately my work is not for them, but for the Lord. And they may treat me unjustly, but the Lord will reward me. Hear that? That's what he says. Fear God. No, God will reward you for your hard work, for your good attitude. Sometimes you have good employers and sometimes you have bad employers. Sometimes you have good government, and sometimes you have bad government. Even under wicked government, you're required to pay your taxes, to obey the laws that are lawful. I'll speak about that in a second. 
and to be a good citizen, even under bad government. Some may object, well, when do you rebel then? When do I rebel? When is it okay? If I have an unjust authority in my life, when can I rebel? Well, when that authority in your life requires you, commands you to sin, then you can rebel. When they say to you, we want you to participate in something that is unjust, that is unlawful according to God's law, then you are free to rebel. How do I know that? In Acts chapter 4, what happens with the apostles? The apostles are called in by the Jewish Sanhedrin, and they're commanded, do not preach the name of Jesus Christ again. And what do they say? Their response is, we must obey God, not man. We have to obey God. We will not obey that law because you are giving us a law that is unlawful. It's a law that is counter to God. In other words, they understood that ultimately the law is king and not the king. Right? So they, let me give you another example. Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We always know them by their, somehow by their Babylonian captivity names. Really they were named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their names that exalt God. The other names exalt Babylonian gods. But the, uh, these three characters and Daniel all had a similar circumstance. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told to fall down and worship a statue. The statue of Nebuchadnezzar. Now Nebuchadnezzar was a good king in some ways and in some ways terrifying. Good in the sense that he actually honored Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, honored Daniel in many ways and allowed them to continue to serve God. Wicked in many ways as to how he treated Israel, how he sacked Jerusalem, etc. But the point is that he was allowing them to continue to serve God and finally, and so they continued to serve him faithfully. Even as an unjust king, they served him faithfully until, until he commanded them to do something that was unlawful. He commanded them to fall down and worship his image. And thousands of people fell and they stayed standing. And then they were thrown in the fire furnace and God saved them from that. You are probably familiar with the story. Daniel, Daniel was under um, Darius, King Darius, and he was also under Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, etc. But under King Darius, he was commanded that he's not to participate in his prayers anymore. Daniel served all of these kings well. But when he was commanded that it was against the law to pray to God, Daniel went out every day and prayed to God. And he broke that law. And he was thrown in the lion's den, and God protected him. None of them ever knew that God would protect them in those situations. They may have died at the hands of the government. In fact, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all admit it. They flat out say to Nebuchadnezzar, whether our God will save us or not, we don't know. We don't know. But we know this. We're not going to disobey his law. He's God. And you're not. There are laws that the government may push on you or that your employer, there are things your employer may command you to do that if they're sin, you don't do them. I'll give you an example that's recent. Um, when the Supreme Court in the state of California legalized homosexual marriage, county clerks all over the, all over the state were required to um, give marriage licenses to homosexual couples. Ann Barnett, our county clerk, refused to do it and just stopped issuing marriage licenses altogether. The county supervisors were appealed to to remove her from office. 
So I went down to the county supervisor's chamber with a whole group of other people and appealed to them not to try to remove her, not to try to command her to do it against her will, etc. And I actually read from Acts 4 to them. And I told them, you have been appointed by God. And you should obey the laws of God. When they disobey the laws of God, their law is unjust and you should rebel against it. The, the American revolutionaries understood this. We, we think about the American Revolution, we wonder, well, what right did they have to rebel from England? Well, they, they went under a principle called lex rex, the idea that the law is king. In other words, they understood the truth, that ultimately, what rules over us is the law, not the king, the law. And the law is determined by God. And if the law is unjust, in other words, if the king or the government is issuing an unjust law, a law that requires us to violate God's law, then the king or the government has stepped outside of their right. And so we disobey them because the law is king. And so they said to to the British government, they didn't actually revolt if you go back historically and look at it. They wrote a document saying, we are not going to be a part of this unjust lawmaking or keeping anymore. We're not going to be oppressed by your unjust laws any longer. And they wrote a document sending it off. The British then retaliated against them and they fought back and we have the Revolutionary War. But the idea is that when your employer, your spouse, your government commands you to break the law, at that point, you then rebel. But until that point, you serve them even if they're unjust. What do I mean by that? Even if they're cruel, unkind, you continue to serve them for the sake of God. Even if they're unfair, as long as they are not requiring you to violate God's commands. However, even when you are submitting to authority this way, when you are submitting to them, you may be mistreated. You may be abused in some manner by your government or your employer, and you may not be able to defect to another country (laughs) to get out from underneath it, and you may not be able to afford leaving your job. So how do you suffer well in that context? How do you demonstrate God's excellencies when you are suffering unjustly? Leads the second way we demonstrate God's excellencies in our daily lives. We embrace the call. Here it is. Embrace the call to suffer injustice like Jesus did. Embrace the call to suffer injustice like Jesus did. Look at verse 19, chapter 2. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself To him who judges justly. First we understand that Jesus is a picture of our calling to suffer. He's an example of what it means to suffer in the midst of injustice. Jesus is our example. Look at verse 21 again. 
For to this you, that's us believers, have been called. It's your calling. It's your vocation. It's like being a doctor or a pastor or any other, a housewife, whatever you've been called to, whatever your vocation is. To this you have been called. What is the calling? Verse 21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You've been called to suffer injustice as Jesus did and to suffer it well. I think we often think that our life calling is put on hold when we're in suffering, don't we? I mean, I know I do. When, when I'm in the midst of suffering, I want to hold up and deal with the suffering, and somehow I think my life calling has been put on hold. It actually happened to me in the midst of the seven months that, that my family went through, which were very difficult earlier in this year. I remember, because I was in my office, and Jason was, Pastor Jason was there with me, and, and I was lamenting to him that I felt like my life calling had been put on hold. I've been called to preach the word. I've been called to cast vision to lead the congregation. I've been called to um, counsel people, to care for people, to deal with seeing where God is going to take our church and praying and leading us in a direction. I've been called to all that, Jason, and now I'm on hold. I'm just sitting here doing nothing and watching you lead the church and wondering and chomping at the bit going, why has God put my calling on hold? My calling is out there and I have to now sit here and not fulfill my calling until somewhere down the road. And Jason said to me, and in so many words, I'm condensing the conversation, but said to me in so many words, you're, you're completely wrong, Chad. Your calling isn't, isn't down there, something that's on hold that you're waiting for. This right here is your calling. This is what you've been called to. You need to embrace your calling. You might not like what you've been called to, but this is what God's called you to. You need to embrace it and suffer well. And that was, that, those were very hard words to hear, but very helpful words to hear. Because I did need to embrace my calling. And I want to look really at three, three truths with regard to Jesus embracing his calling that are examples for us. Jesus embraces calling. I want to see the examples for us. Look, look with me um, at verse 19. The first one really is this. He's mindful of God and trusting himself to the Father. Verse 19 and then verse 23. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. In other words, conscious of God. Thinking about God. One endures suf- sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now look down at verse 23 again. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, Jesus didn't think something strange was happening to him. In, other, in the idea of this, that somehow what was happening to him was outside of God's control, outside of the loving, fatherly providence of God. He knew that God's hand was guiding the whole situation. He was mindful of God in the midst of unjust suffering, knowing, knowing that God's hand was guiding the whole situation. Knowing something else beyond that, he was entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does that mean? Jesus understood that while I'm suffering unjustly now, 
The Father will reward me. The Father sees. The Father knows. The Father will carry out vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I know vengeance will be had, and I don't have to meet it out myself. I can entrust myself to him. I know that when people are treating me unjustly, when I'm suffering unjustly, that the Father knows the truth, and I don't have to run after vengeance myself. I know the Father's in control, and I don't have to wonder like something strange is happening to me outside of God's control. I can be mindful of him entrusting myself to the Father. Christ did this, and I want to read his example specifically to you. Turn to John chapter 18, but keep your hand in 1 Peter there. John chapter 18, because I want you to see how Jesus carries this out with Pontius Pilate. Knowing his father's in control, knowing he's going to submit to Pontius Pilate's authority because God has given it to him, knowing that God will carry out justice and that God sees. Look at chapter 18 of John, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The, Jew, the Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. In other words, we want to give him the death penalty and we can't do it, so we need you to judge him. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to over, the, over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. You hear that? Jesus knows what would happen if his kingdom were to fully arrive right there. If the Father was to mete out justice, there would be a war on, and they would lose. And Jesus was victorious. He knows that. But he says, that's not for now. Look what he goes on and says. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So postmoderns aren't the first ones around who think truth is relative, by the way. It didn't happen in the 60s. Even Pilate wondered. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release the, you, to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. He's suffering unjustly here. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Now listen to Jesus' answer. He doesn't say, no, you don't, Pilate. His answer. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Hear that? Your authority over me has been given to you by the Father. You've been given the authority over me to even treat me unjustly. And Jesus' response was not to revile or to sin. I'm going to give you a second principle. Not only did he entrust himself to the Father, knowing the Father was in absolute control of everything in his life, knowing the Father would mete out justice, but he didn't suffer, he did not suffer for his own sin. There's really no commendation in suffering for your own sin. Right? If your employer fires you because you're a bad employee, you're not suffering unjustly. If your government puts you in prison because you broke a just law, you're not suffering unjustly. Look at verse 20. So you see that Jesus never sinned. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, there's no credit with God if when you sin, you're mistreated for it. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. He didn't suffer for his own sin. And not only that, the third thing we really learn about Jesus, he didn't even sin in his suffering. When he's in the midst of suffering, he didn't even sin. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, when they're yelling, hail king of the Jews and beating him and mocking him, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So here's the difficult part. Because Jesus was trusting the Father and because he understood this was his calling, he was called to suffer this way. He embraced it and did not sin. Think of the tremendous temptation there is to sin in these circumstances. When you are mistreated, you want to fight back, right? You want to rebel, right? You want to seek revenge. And to some degree, our state provides some measure of justice that you can seek. However, it is never your responsibility as an individual to carry out that justice. And it is always your responsibility as a Christian to recognize that ultimately, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Jesus was tempted to not to submit to the Father, wasn't he? He knew what his calling was. And what does he say to the Father in the garden? The night before he, just before really he's betrayed, what does he say? Father, take this cup from me. You know what the cup was? He was about to drink the cup 
of the Father's wrath against all the sin ever committed by everyone who would ever believe. He's about to drink that wrath. Father, take this cup from me. Then he realizes, but this is my calling. Not my will, but your will be done. I may not like this calling you've put in my life, but you've called me to it. And therefore, while I am tempted, I am tempted to sin, to deny the calling you've put in my life, I'm not going to. I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to embrace the calling. So not my will, but thine be done. He embraced his calling and trusted the Father. And when I embrace my calling to suffer unjustly, when you embrace your calling to suffer unjustly, God's excellencies are magnified. But I want to give you a, a counterexample because we always look at the heroes of the faith, you know, the guys who were at the cross or, you know, the guys who, like Peter, who was crucified upside down, the guys like John who were boiled in oil and put on the island of Patmos, the guys like some of the reformers in England who, while they were being burned at the stake, one of them looks at the other one and says, play the man, right? Man up, right? Today we light a fire or spark that's going to burn bright throughout all of England. In other words, they knew that their death was going to further the gospel in England. Can you imagine that as you're tied to the sticks about to be burned? You're telling the other guy, man up. We're about to spread the gospel across England through our death. We hear about these guys who suffer injustice well, and we think, you know what? Those are great stories. I want to be like those guys. But the reality is I fail. I fail to suffer well. Is there no hope for me now? Look at Peter. That's why I love the Apostle Peter. Peter is my guy. Here's why I love Peter so much. I told the guys this in the elder training on Thursday night. I love Peter so much because he has a big mouth. And I understand him, right? I understand him. And sometimes what comes out of that big mouth are these glorious truths. Like, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And God says to him what? Man, Simon, son of John, blessed are you. All right? Why are you blessed? Because you didn't just speak the words of man. You spoke the words of God. And then later on, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. Right after that, Jesus says, guys, I need you to know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, Lord, and rebukes God. You don't rebuke the Lord. It's the greatest oxymoron in the Bible to say, no, Lord, right? You cannot say that to the Lord, but he does. And Jesus turns to Peter right after this great scene in which Peter is demonstrated to be this guy who's speaking the words of God. Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. That's not something you want to hear Jesus call you. <laughs> but that's what Peter's called. Same scene. This is my man right here. Peter then goes on and he, when Jesus is first captured, what does Peter do? He just blows up and takes out a sword and slices a guy's ear off. He's like, no, no, you're, you're missing the point here, Peter. This is my calling. When then Jesus is being prosecuted, not persecuted, but prosecuted by the Jewish courts, the Roman courts, as he's going through this situation and he's beginning to be increasingly persecuted in the midst of his prosecution, Peter is being asked over and over and over again, do you, don't you know him? Three different times, Peter, don't you know him? And Peter's like, no, I don't know that guy. I don't know him. This is the guy who confessed him as the Christ. 
I don't even know him. Peter denies knowing him. Peter, in other words, in multiple, on multiple occasions, when suffering comes, fails to suffer well. Fails to suffer well. And yet, God chose to use him mightily. God chose to redeem him and restore him and use him mightily. And while we are called to suffer injustice without running into sin, the fact is, like Peter, we will probably often fail at it. So what happens when we begin to sin in the midst of our suffering? I mean, what happens when we fail to suffer well? What about when my boss is unfair and so I lash out in anger and do something around the workplace I shouldn't? Right? Or some cop pulls me over and gives me a ticket and I get angry and give him the bird, right? In the Christian circles, we call it the dove and use this finger, right? Because it's, no, okay, all right. The, um, <laughs> it's funny if you think, okay, but the, uh, the point is, what happens if you do that? You sinned in the midst of a situation and you think to yourself, I don't deserve to get a ticket. I always drive so well and this one time there's this lame speed trap that you set up down there on Joetta, right? Some of you have probably been hit by it and why did you get me here? And you say, well, you know what? Um, you may have been caught in a speed trap and you may feel like it's unjust but you had no right to sin. So what happens when you do? Does God reject you at that point? When the government raises your taxes and, and, and you um, get tired of it and somehow you start hiding money so you don't have to pay your fair share of taxes, has that sin now sort of, that you realize that you've done, you feel guilty about, has that sin now sort of barred you from the kingdom of God? Because when you feel like something unjust is happening, you've reacted in a way that's sinful, are you somehow now no longer having access to the Lord? Are you outside of grace what about when your spouse keeps acting like a jerk and out of anger you sin against them? Are you out of God's grace for your sin? Has God rejected you? What if I'm not suffering well? What if the intensity of the suffering is too much for me or the duration of the suffering is too long for me? What about when I am wilting under the pressure and I feel as if it's all lost and I begin to despair. What happens if I become like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 who says, I despaired of life itself. Hear what he says there? The suffering became so intense that I despaired of life itself. Has God rejected you then? Well, if your hope is in the idea that you suffer well, then yes, God rejects you. But that is not our hope. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is our hope and that Jesus suffered well for us. It's the third way that we really show the excellencies of God in our daily lives is that we trust Christ who bore our curse, who suffered well in our place. Look at what he says here um, in verse 21, first, you notice a couple of things. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Now go down to verse 24. He himself bore our sins 
in his body on the tree. He took the curse of God that was due us upon himself. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, when you see, when you recognize that Jesus is my righteousness... Jesus is our hope. He bore our curse. Now I can live for righteousness myself. Why? Because I may feel like a failure. I may know that I've sinned. I may feel guilty for my sin. However, I am freed by the gospel to strive for righteousness again. And when I'm trusting Jesus my righteousness, then God's grace is magnified in my life and the excellencies of God are upheld. Listen, I I don't tell this to you in a disconnected fashion. I don't tell this to you as some guy who says, you know, it's really interesting to read about Paul, the apostle, who suffered so badly that he despaired of life itself. But thank God I've never had anything like that where I've gotten to the point where I've despaired of life myself because that would be a lie. I know some of you have suffered to the point where you've despaired of life itself. I I can tell you right now I have. In the middle of the seven-month period that we went through, I remember a night when I broke. I had felt like uh, my family is over as I know it. My marriage is over. My ministry is certainly going to be over. Everything I've worked for is sort of over. I'm going to be unemployed. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to be broke. I'm going to have to move back in with my mom. I'm going to have no wife. I don't know what, my life is a mess. And now I'm so angry that I'm finding myself yelling at my wife who's in the midst of suffering. And I got in my truck and I took off. And while I was driving my truck, I was going to find a diesel to end it. You know that. I was driving thinking to myself, it is now time for me to put an end to all this because I am despairing of life itself. Nothing left for me. I can't even suffer well. And I, I was out and praying while I was out there saying, Lord, I just can't take it any longer. And um, the Lord reminded me of Hebrews 4 and 5. He reminded me of the gospel. He reminded me, you don't, you don't, your hope isn't suffering well yourself, Chad. Your hope is in my son who suffered well for you. He reminded me of this passage and, and I returned to it and I drove home and read it. And, it. and it says this in Hebrews 4, 14 and following. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Hear that? Jesus was tempted as I was, yet did not sin. That, right, yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Go down in chapter 5 where he lays out what this looks like a little bit more in verse 7. 
In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, I... I am not my justification before God. My ministry, my family, my marriage, my ability to do a good job at whatever I've been called to do, my ability to suffer well without sinning is not my justification before God. Jesus is my justification before God. And I may have sinned in the midst of my suffering, which I in fact did, but Jesus did not. He was tempted in every way, just as I was, but without sin, and that was my hope. And the gospel saved my life that night. And I'm telling you right now, if you're a person who has reached that point where you've despaired of life itself, look to Jesus. He's your hope. He is your hope. He has suffered in your place. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your gospel for your son, for the fact that he has saved us, that he has suffered well in injustice in our place, that he is our righteousness and our hope, that it's to him that we look and not to anybody else in this room, not to ourselves, not to our spouse, not to our children, not to our jobs, not to our government. We don't look to any of it as our hope. We look to Jesus as our hope. And we know that he is good and that he is righteous. And we know that in him we have been cleansed of all unrighteousness, that we have been forgiven for all our sin, that he, that he is our righteousness. Father, we pray that we would turn to him that we would look to him as our hope, that we would know him as our salvation, that we would rejoice in him, and that, Father, we would embrace our calling to follow his example, to suffer unjustly, to suffer it well, and to know, Father, that every time we fall into sin in the midst of it, that we have a great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but who was in every way tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near to the throne of grace that we might find grace and mercy, help in the time of need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.